This morning we're going to be considering (coughs) the voice in the wilderness. Voice in the wilderness, Luke chapter 3 verses 1 through to 18. Even as I was reading the passage to you a few minutes ago, I was quietly thinking to myself, goodness I've missed loads out. There's so much in this passage, but God willing the, the, the bits that I do bring to you this morning will um, will be an encouragement to you or a challenge to you. Back in chapter 1, verse 76 and 77, I'm just turning back there. Zacharias the priest, he said to his son, John the Baptist, Thou child shall be called the prophet of the highest. For thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. Or for the remission of their sins. To give knowledge of salvation unto his people for the remission of their sins. Today we come back to John the Baptist and we shall consider him and his ministry as a prophet of God. The call of John the Baptist to be the prophet of God or the prophet of the highest was obviously a very special thing. But it was extra special in that he was the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. By that I mean You can think of him as an Old Testament prophet, although we're reading from the New Testament, he was from the Old Testament era. And of all the Old Testament prophets of God, he was the one who heralded the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'd see it in John chapter 1, verse 29, where John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. In time to come, John would reprove King Herod for all the evils that he had done and that would result in John being shut up in prison. When he was in prison, his special status as a prophet of God was acknowledged by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom he was a forerunner for. Jesus, speaking to a multitude of people, said to them, What went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. Before we consider John's ministry, let's consider the man himself. We'll consider John the Baptist. For one thing, even though John was more than a prophet, he most certainly did not promote himself. Instead, he magnified the Lord Jesus Christ. As John said in Luke chapter 3 verse 16, I indeed baptise you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. We see there a glimpse of John preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said that he was not worthy to unloose the shoes of Jesus. That speaks volumes of John's humility that he didn't even consider himself worthy to do the most menial of things, to stoop down and loosen 
the Saviour's shoes. Maybe humility is not a word that you would have thought to describe John the Baptist. After all, in verse 7, he called the multitude that came to him for baptism a generation of vipers. No doubt those words were precisely what those people needed to hear. All too often preachers preach smooth things as they flatter and entertain their audiences. And in those audiences, there are inevitably going to be unrepentant sinners who are on their way to hell. And no doubt also in those audiences, there are Christians who somewhere or other in time have lost sight of the sinfulness of sin in others and especially in themselves. And yet they get their ears tickled and they get told how wonderful they all are. John didn't do that, did he? He called them a generation of vipers. Even though John was more than a prophet, he didn't carry out his ministry um, under some fancy, self-seeking banner such as John the Baptist International Ministries. Rather, he came in the spirit of Elijah, who was another Old Testament prophet, whom the Lord raised up about 900 years earlier to call the Israelites to repent of their sins. And we see a lot of the You read about Elijah in the Old Testament and you can see that John was raised up in the spirit of Elijah. John had no designer suits. He was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt strapped around his waist. His diet was just as basic as his shoes and his clothes. He ate locusts and wild honey. John's ministry came to an end when he was in his early 30s, but don't imagine that he settled down to an early retirement. Neither did he enjoy an inflation-proof pension. His reward was infinitely greater. King Herod had him beheaded whilst he was in prison, and so it was that John was promoted to heavenly glory, which is far better, wouldn't you say? Well, now consider something of John's ministry. Look at verse 3. And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. That's quite a mouthful, that, isn't it? Preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. We've got to look at the whole thing there, not just one or two words in that. John preached a baptism that was marked by repentance, which is precisely what the Apostle Paul did on the day of Pentecost, after the Lord Jesus Christ had risen to the dead from the dead and had ascended to heavenly glory. Peter said to the Jews who had assembled in Jerusalem, on the day of Pentecost, repent and be baptised. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Prior to calling on them to repent, 
Peter had plainly told those Jews that they had taken the promised Christ and they had crucified him. When they heard that, they were pricked in their heart and they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Just in those words alone, you can see that they, there was contrition, that there was a brokenness of heart, that they were repentant. Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. They that gladly received Peter's words were baptised and on that day about 3,000 souls were added to the church. In other words, about 3,000 people repented, they believed and they were baptised and they went home forgiven and saved from their sins. Note that Peter's baptism, you can look at it very carefully, not now but some later stage, look at it for yourself in, uh, in Acts chapter 2. Peter's baptism was an integral part of about 3,000 souls being added to the church. That doesn't mean that 3,000 people applied for and were accepted into membership of a local church that day. It means that as a result of what had just taken place, the repentance, the believing and the baptism, about 3,000 souls were engrafted into the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that as we continue to consider John's baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Remember Peter's baptism. First of all, John preached repentance, where repentance means having a change of mind or coming to one's senses. Look again at verse 3. And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. We're first of all looking at that first bit there, the baptism of repentance, and we're going to consider what repentance actually is. The fact of the matter is that everyone, and I mean everyone, who has not shown repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is not of a sound mind. In those words, I'm accusing a lot of people Billions of people in this world of not being of a sound mind. And quite frankly, they're sinfully insane. The majority of people in this world are sinfully mad. And that insanity man- manifests itself in various ways. Some ways more obvious than others. For example, we now have a situation in the world where people imagine that they can change their gender. That is insanity. And it meets with the approval of world leaders, such as the President of the United States of America. The man is mad, sinfully mad. The approval by our leaders of what has been termed transgenderism is seen in evil laws 
that are being passed, resulting in very young bodies being legally mutilated as they undergo gender reassignment surgery by evil surgeons, sinfully mad surgeons who have abandoned the Hippocratic Oath which places an obligation on doctors to do no harm. So what do those doctors do? They mutilate perfectly healthy bodies. Also, it is not unknown for general practitioners when seeing children to ask those children if they are boys or girls. You'd have thought that after five or more years at medical school, they could work that one out for themselves. But they're following the narrative there of transgenderism. As are our politicians, our world leaders, who are all sinfully insane. But it's all part of sinful man's rebellion against God, who made man in his image, he made them male and female. So what do we see happening now in the world? People saying, well, I don't want to be a male anymore. I'm going to be a female. And vice versa. It's an attack on the word of God. And ultimately, it is rebellion against our maker, almighty God. And you would have to be mad to do that. These people are not of a sound mind and they need to repent just as the huge proportion of evil world leaders who legislate for baby killing under a banner of women's health care. They too need to come to their senses and they need to repent. So too do the surgeons who slaughter unborn babies need to come to their senses and repent. And so too do all the mothers who take abortion pills or go to abortion clinics to sacrifice their babies to the gods of career advancement, convenience or whatever. They need to come to their senses and they need to show repentance towards God. God's law places upon all of us a duty to love him with our entire being and to love our neighbour as ourselves. But the examples that I've just given show the extent to which people violate God's law. And the fact is that we all sin. I'm not just selecting certain people, certain categories in society. We all sin. We all come short of the glory of God. And even our lying lips are an abomination to God who is truth and cannot lie. Therefore, we must all repent. As I've already said, everyone who has not shown repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is not of a sound mind. When there is true repentance and a person really does come to his senses, it ought to be visible. Although repentance means coming to your senses or having a change in your mind, that is something that ought to be seen. 
For example, look at verses 12 and 13 in chapter 3. Then came also publicans, their tax collectors, to be baptised, and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed to you. It reminds me of Zacchaeus when when the Lord Jesus Christ called him down from a tree. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, we're told that he was saved that day. But we see the, the, the fruit of repentance from Zacchaeus in that he said that if he'd if he'd taken more than he ought to, exacted more than he ought to from anyone, he would repay them fourfold. That's repentance, a change of mind leading to action. We, we can see it in Zacchaeus, and I believe we can see it in the tax collectors in verses 12 and 13 here. It's commendable that they said to John, what shall we do? Their question suggests that they were truly repentant. However, the acid test would be whether or not they actually did take steps to stop taking from people more money than they ought to have taken and putting that money in their own pockets. As John said in verse 8 to all who came to him for baptism, bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance. So important to appreciate that. If you're, pres- uh, uh, um, if you're com- a confessing Christian, a professing Christian, I wouldn't say forget the repentance when you first became a, a Christian. Don't forget that. But what about now? Is there repentance in your life? Is there a godly sorrow Have you come to your senses about something that you may have said or did maybe yesterday, the week before, even today? And your conscience is weighing heavy on you. That's repentance. And then, of course, what do you do? You confess your sin to God and you seek his enabling grace to do something about it. The God who saved you by his grace. Having said that, although repentance towards God is integral to being reconciled to God, to having peace with God, so that you can know and address God as Father, the repentant sinner will continue to violate God's laws in thought, in word, and in the things that he does. And don't I know it, even after all these years of being a Christian. I can't remember who it was, but uh, there was this Christian who, who said that even in his deathbed, he will still be showing repentance towards God for his sins. And that was a man who had full assurance of faith. A man who knew that when he closed his eyes for the last time, he would enter into the presence of his great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, even if you show repentance before God, you still need a righteousness that is not your own. You need the righteousness of God and that comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul said, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So, your good deeds, your when your obedience, you're being a good boy, a good girl, you're helping old ladies across the road, feeding the neighbour's cat when they're on holiday and all the rest of it. Nothing wrong with any of that. But you can't claim any of that before the throne of God as being reason why you are to enter into heaven. There'll be no boasting in heaven as we've seen on Wednesday at the Bible study, and I've already said it a couple of times today, we enter boldly into the holiest, into heaven itself, by a new and living way, by the blood of Jesus. Through the veil that he has consecrated for us, that is his flesh. You come to God with just one plea, that your Saviour died for you. And if I may add, having lived a life of perfect obedience for you. As the Apostle Paul said, therefore by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin, But it goes on to say, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, this righteousness that is not your own, that that is um, a righteousness of God, we read about it in the Old Testament, in the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified or being declared righteous freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is what it's all about. And if you're a Christian, he is your righteousness, as indeed he is your sanctification, he is your wisdom, he is your everything. And you you stand before God accepted in him. And so it is that not only did John proclaim repentance to the multitudes that came to him at the River Jordan, he preached the gospel of Christ, of Christ rather. He didn't leave them dangling over hellfire. He preached the gospel of Christ. The Greek word that's been translated preached in verse 18, let's have a look at verse 18 there. And many other things in his exhortation, he preached he unto the people. 
That word preached in verse 18 is different from the word that has been translated preaching in verse 3. Where it's written in verse 3 that John came preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Can you see that? You've got preaching the baptism of repentance in verse 3 and in verse 18 he he preached unto the people. He exhorted people, encouraged people, he preached to them. In verse 3, preaching simply means proclaiming. Whereas in verse 18, the Greek word, euangelizo, from which we get the English word evangelize, and it refers to declaring glad tidings or preaching the gospel. Verse 18 is a reference to John preaching the gospel of Christ. Preaching the gospel is precisely what John the Baptist did, as well as calling on people to repent. As the Apostle Paul said in Acts chapter 19 and verse 4, John verily baptised with the baptism of repentance, we've already seen that, John called on people to repent. So John verily baptised with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him, Jesus, which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. He preached repentance and he preached that they should believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only did John preach Christ, he proclaimed the Holy Ghost. In other words, that people heard, what people heard from that Old Testament prophet was a Trinitarian message. Make no mistake about it, John the Baptist was a Trinitarian. He was a prophet of God. And it stands to reason he knew who God was. And we can see clearly that indeed he did preach the the triune God. As can be seen in verse 16, John preached to them, Christ who shall baptise with the Holy Ghost and with fire. As to what John actually meant, it would seem, I'm not going to be dogmatic about this, but it would seem that the explanation is given in the very next verse, in verse 17. Concerning Jesus, whose fan is in his hand, and he will truly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner and the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. God the Holy Ghost ministers to the elect of God, those who were chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy, blameless in his sight, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, the Holy Ghost, raises them, these people, you if you're a Christian, he raises you, he's raised you to new life, and he works repentance in such people. He applies the finished work of Christ to their once unbelieving hearts. He sanctifies them, he teaches them, he leads them to all truth. 
And they are the ones whom the Lord Jesus Christ will gather into his garner or into his barn, his heavenly barn. As for the mention of fire in verse 16, that would seem to correspond with the unquenchable fire in verse 17. And it refers to where all who have never shown repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will spend eternity in hellfire. In conclusion, John's ministry was one in which he preached the baptism of repentance for the remission or forgiveness of sins. Also, the people who came to him for baptism were called upon to believe the gospel that he preached unto them. Although I don't, I don't know, obviously, but I don't imagine that everyone who came to John at the River Jordan went home graciously and gloriously saved from all their sins. But no doubt there were those who did, having repented, having believed in the one who was to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. They believing in him for the forgiveness of their sins and having been baptised. Can you see the importance of baptism? It's there to be seen along with repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just for a moment, consider that other church ordinance, the Lord's Supper, or the breaking of bread, the communion service. We probably all know that the Lord's Supper is a time of remembrance of the sacrificial and bloody death of the Lord Jesus Christ. At this church, it is observed every Sunday before the main service, that time of remembrance. The question is, is the Lord's Supper simply a time of remembrance? Is that it? I ask that because I trust that if you're a Christian, there isn't a day that goes by without you remembering the the Lord's sacrificial death for you when his body was broken and when he shed his blood on the cross. I presume that is something that you remember every day of your born again life. Also, I would be failing in my duties if when we assemble assemble for regular services at this church, such as this service now, and also when we meet at our midweek Bible study, that I, I would be failing in my duties if I did not bring to remembrance the self-sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross, at the cross for all who trust in him. This is something that we do at this church. The point I'm making is that the Lord's Supper is a very special time of remembrance instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's not something that has crept into church tradition or evolved over the years. It was instituted by the incarnate Son of God. Therefore, we do well to regard it as a sacrament, not as the Catholics do, with their belief that the bread is literally the body of Christ and the wine is literally his blood. We reject that outright. 
It is, however, to be seen as a means of God's grace, whereby all who belong to Jesus and come to the communion table experience and enjoy fellowship, not just one with another, but with Jesus himself. A heightened fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. When you see it that way, you might not want to miss out on that very special remembrance service in the future. Coming back to that other church ordinance, baptism, whether it be John's baptism in the River Jordan or baptism by a church minister right here on this island, like the Lord's Supper, it has been given to the church by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not something that has crept in over the years. As such, it is to be viewed as a sacrament whereby God pours out and imparts the riches of his grace. So much so that there are those, including John Calvin, who teach that not only does water baptism signify a spiritual reality, in other words, not only is it a sign of something spiritual that happens, it seals that reality to repentant and believing hearts. It is something that God uses. We don't get baptised, we are baptised in accordance with the... the um, Instructions of the Lord Jesus Christ who instituted baptism. Calvin did not teach baptismal regeneration either. Neither did he accept the Roman Catholic dogma concerning the bread and the wine at the Lord's Supper becoming the body and blood of Christ. So we can listen to John Calvin and what he said about baptism. To a degree, we have to be careful here. Let me just tell you what he said. What John John Calvin said concerning preaching of baptism of repentance. This form of expression shows first, generally, what is the right use of the sacraments and next, why baptism was instituted and in what it consists. A sacrament then, is not a dumb ceremony exhibiting some unmeaning pomp without doctrine, but the word of God is joined to it. The word of God is attached to the sacrament, whether it be the Lord's Supper or water baptism, and gives life to the outward ceremony. As we come to a close, look again at what John the Baptist said in verse 17. Whose fan is in his hand and he will truly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. It's not very different to what Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 13 about when he shall come again in judgment. Jesus said in Matthew 13 The Son of Man shall send forth his angels and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. 
there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. They are the ones who will be gathered up into his garner or into his barn. Who who have ears to hear, let him hear. Therefore, I say to you, repent and be baptised, believing that the Lord Jesus Christ was wounded for your failure to love God as you ought to, and because of your failure to love others as yourself. We're all guilty of that. There is no one in this world who loves God with as they ought to, with all their heart, with all their mind, with all their soul, with all their strength. Don't kid yourself that you do. None of us does. And there is no one who loves their neighbour as themselves. I've already, earlier on, I told you about a sizeable proportion of the world's population that has shown very clearly that we do not love our neighbour as ourselves. When you, when you consider all of the, all of our politicians who legislate for baby murder, all of the surgeons who perform that evil, um, evil, that evil, and as well, all of the expectant mothers who sacrifice their babies to the god of the gods of this world and ultimately to the devil. But let's extend that to all of us because there's no one in this world who loves his neighbour as himself. So we all need to repent, be baptised, believing that Jesus was wounded for our failure to love God and to love our neighbour as ourselves. Repent and be baptised, believing that Jesus paid the penalty for your sins when they were laid upon him at the cross. Finally, he that believeth and is baptised shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Amen.